Lord God Almighty. Let's read, starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of the temple trembled, that is, at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, This has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they, may, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are devastated and without inhabitant. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will be again, again be subject to burning, like the terebinth or the or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Well, as uh, Jonathan said earlier in the announcements, we're going to be we're undertaking uh, the next few weeks. We're going through a series we are calling the foundations of grace, the foundations of grace, and the first. Part of that series is going to be, or is, our philosophy of ministry. Our philosophy of ministry. And what, we've, what we're going to find out over the next few weeks, and you have it in your handout, what we're going to find out is that Grace Bible Church Gainesville is committed to four non-negotiables in our ministry. Or said another way, four pillars of ministry. Four pillars of ministry. We're committed to the exaltation of God, the exaltation of God. We're going to see that. We're going to specifically look at Isaiah 6, 1 through 13 today. Secondly, we're committed to the exposition of Scripture, the exposition of Scripture. And we're going to look at 2 Timothy 2, 15, uh, next, not next week because Mark will be here next week, but the week after that. Thirdly, we are committed to equipping the saints. Equipping the saints. And fourthly, we are committed to evangelizing evangelizing the lost. Today, then, as we get started on this series, we're going to explore first why we need a philosophy, philosophy of ministry. Why it's important. And then we're going to look at the first, the first point, as we said, the exaltation of God. 
Now, I have always been intrigued by the study, or the process, that is, of construction. As an engineer, I, I, I love the aspects of a building or a bridge or a dam coming together. I've been known to spend hours and hours watching videos depicting large construction projects. I know that's weird, but it is true. I truly enjoy watching videos and reading books that show us how buildings and bridges and dams are constructed. My favorite book, one of my favorite books of all time, outside of books about the Bible, that is, outside of the Bible itself, is a book called The Great Bridge, the story of the Brooklyn Bridge. I was also intrigued by books about the Panama Canal and the Hoover Dam. I've studied the construction of the Empire State Building. I, I'm just a geek when it comes to this stuff. Now, you, know, you may have noticed, you probably have noticed, that it takes a long time for a construction project to, to come out of the ground and take shape. Sometimes it takes months for a building foundation to be built, and then seemingly overnight the structure is in place. Have you ever noticed that? that you'll see them kind of digging around for a long time, and then and you're like, what are they doing? What's going on? And all of a sudden, the building is in place. As an example, in the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, crews worked for many months below the East River just to sink the foundation of the Brooklyn Bridge to bedrock. They, they worked for months below the surface of the river. The, the work was hard and dangerous, and at least 20 lives were lost, from what, I can, what I've found, uh, were lost in the building of the bridge. And many of them were lost in the building of the foundations in the bedrock to the bedrock of the river. Some of them died of what we call the bends. It was a new phenomenon at the time where the pressure difference that's coming up from the foundation, the press pressure difference of rising to above the water level. The bridge's designer was actually killed as well early, early in the project. Now, because of, of the great of the great danger, many of these injuries, like we said, happened prior to these uh, prior to the massive columns that we see uh, rising from the river. The foundation, then, this is the point. The foundation of any structure is the most important part of the project, and is often the most difficult. That's the point. The foundation is the is the most critical part, but is often and the most important part, but is often the most difficult. And it's during this critical time that people get most impatient to see progress. It's, in, it's important to understand that. Now, I'm intrigued by feats of engineering, but I'm also intrigued by failures of engineering. I've studied many tragedies which were caused by human error. And just north of Santa Clarita, California, where our, our family lived when I was in seminary, uh, you can hike to the side of the St. Francis Dam. This dam was constructed in the 1920s by a man named William Mulholland. It dramatically failed just a few days after it was, it was filled, and the subsequent flood uh, took 431 lives. And what they found is, is that the foundation of the dam was not sunk down to bedrock. He actually, Mulholland, from what can be, what can be found, he actually took uh, many shortcuts in making sure that that dam was coming out of the ground quickly. He didn't want to spend all this time making sure that the dam was in bedrock. Unfortunately, 231 people lost their lives because of it. 
In other words, had the dam been built on suitable bedrock, it would have performed as designed and would still be standing today. As such, we must build on suitable bedrock if we want our structure to stand the test of time. Our Lord knew this truth when he compared the flimsy nature of a house built on sand versus a secure house built on the rock. That's in Matthew 7. Beloved, when we build our houses on bedrock, on the firm foundation of God's word, we can expect it to last. Homes and churches uh, cannot last. The homes and churches where we fail to ensure that their foundations sink deep into the bedrock of the word of God will fail. You understand that? If we don't ensure that the foundation of our homes and churches are, on, are, are sunk deep into the bedrock of the Word of God, they will fail. Jesus himself explained in the Sermon on the Mount, we've already referenced it. Therefore, verse 24, Matthew 7, 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Important. We sometimes miss that. If you hear his word and you act on his word, you can be compared to a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. In verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. It's important, then, to build our house, to build our church on the rock, on the rock, on the bedrock of the Word of God. Over the next few weeks, then, we're going to take the time to build a philosophy of ministry which will allow us to clearly articulate how we do ministry. It will help us ensure that the foundations of this church, the foundations of Grace Bible Church, sink deep to the bedrock of Scripture, the words of Christ. Now as a church, we must be clear why we do what we do. In other words, we must understand the purpose and mission of this church of the church, that is, to be able to function as God intends and to accomplish that what he expects us to accomplish. I fear, as we've said last week in the prelude to this series, I fear that many problems and conflicts that we face are due to confusion over the purpose and mission of the church. We must know the purpose of the church and we must be able to articulate it to each other and to those who are outside the body of Christ. Have you ever thought about that? When someone asks you why the church exists, we need to be able to clearly articulate why we exist. And we must understand that not every church will function as it should. And we will not function as God has designed if we don't follow His blueprint for the church. Matthew 16, Jesus said, you will build my church. No, He doesn't say that, right? He says, I will. He says, I will. Therefore, as we, as, we, as we come together as Grace Bible Church, then we need to be looking to the Lord of Scripture as to how the church is to be designed and how the church is to be run. As we heard last week, 
many churches have divergent ideas as to why they exist. We categorize these into three major categories. Some believe that we exist, the church exists primarily for caring for the needy. Some people believe that the church exists primarily to evangelize the lost. And some others believe that the church exists primarily to edify the saints. Now, what we said was last week is all of these are good things but they don't fully capture God's purpose for our existence. You should understand that most churches then, they, they, may have, they have these ideas, and most churches have a philosophy of ministry that matches their reason for existing. And so at Grace Bible Church, we want to do the same thing. But we want our philosophy of ministry, we want our philosophy of ministry to be built upon the bedrock of the Word of God. Therefore, the goal of this series, as we begin this series, and we're going to take a little bit of time this morning to introduce it, the goal of this series is to take those things that we learn from Scripture, those concepts about the church that we've learned from Scripture, and apply them directly to Grace Bible Church. Last year we did a series on the purpose of the church, and we spent a lot of time talking about the church. And what I said last week and what we're saying now is, is that series was largely descriptive of the church descriptive of the church. While this series this year, what we're going to go through over the next few weeks, is largely prescriptive, meaning that we will apply all that we learn to this church, to Grace Bible Church. In other words, what we believe about the church and scripture will drive our philosophy of ministry. And our philosophy of ministry will drive our ministry at ground level. Said another way, our ministries must fit into our philosophy of ministry. Whatever we do must fit in our philosophy of ministry, which is founded on the Word of God, or we flat just won't do it. We won't do it. Now, before we move forward, I want to take a, a quick few minutes here to define what I mean by philosophy of ministry, or what we mean by philosophy of ministry. To be clear, we're not talking, we're not referring to philosophy the study of theories of knowledge. What we are referring to then are general principles that undergird our conduct and actions in ministry. Simply stated then, uh, our philosophy of ministry describes why we do what we do as a church. This is why we do what we do. So when you see what the things that we're doing, then you, you can look at our philosophy of ministry and you can understand why. According to Saving Grace Bible Church, you can look at this on, on the internet. They have their philosophy of ministry posted. It's very similar to what we, we're going to present here. It says the philosophy of ministry is a summation of biblical principles that guides us as a local church. I think that's a good description, but I want to take it one step further. Let me give you a, a, a definition. Our philosophy of ministry then is the summation of biblical priorities that, that determine how our church is to function. Let me say it again. Our philosophy of ministry is the summation of biblical priorities that determine how our church is to function. We use the word summation because, because it's, it's drawn from a deep well of Scripture. These priorities are not exhaustive of Scripture. They're not exhaustive. But they, they give a, a summary. Now, I like the word priorities because we see these as priorities in Scripture. 
the four pillars that we'll call them, the four pillars are priorities in Scripture for the church. Now, I want to take a, a little bit of time. And like I said, this week I'm going to spend quite a bit of time here giving some definitions and giving some understanding of why we're doing this and why this is important. So what I want to do, we've, we've defined what it is to have a, what it is to, what a philosophy of ministry is and why we have it. What I'd like to do then is, actually we define what it is, and that what I'd like to do is I would like to give us the reason why we should have one. So I want to give you four reasons we must develop and follow a biblical philosophy of ministry. Why this is important. First, a biblical philosophy of ministry binds us to Scripture. It binds us to Scripture. We believe, then, that the principles we use to formulate our governing principles must be derived from Scripture. I've said that over and over, and I, and I will continue to say that. That what we do must be derived from the Word of God. If I sound like a broken record, it's by design. If we aim to do God's work in God's way, our guidelines should come from God's Word. Probably should say must come. You see, many churches set aside their biblical convictions for pragmatic reasons. They feel the, the pressure to grow. They feel the pressure to be successful in ministry, so they begin to do things that are not derived from Scripture. Their principles are driven by the latest church growth strategies. They're driven by the latest corporate strategies, but they're not driven directly by the Word of God. But our church then, we want our church, our church, our church must not then, that is, be governed by the principles which are derived outside of Scripture. Said another way, our biblical convictions are not to be set aside for practical or pragmatic reasons. If we don't see the growth that we expect to see, we shouldn't quickly set aside those things that, that we're convicted by from Scripture in order to see growth. The Scriptures then are sufficient. That's the point. They're sufficient, not only for our doctrine, but for practice as well. The Apostle Paul makes this very claim about Scripture in, in 2 Timothy 3.16. He says, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. Profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. He goes on to say in verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, the scripture is all that we need to be equipped for the work of ministry. In 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul articulated his purpose for writing to Timothy when he said this, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. He's writing so that, that Timothy would know how to conduct himself in the church, the household of God. Then he goes on to say, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So we see there where we get this idea of pillar and support. And we, we want these principles that we're going we're gonna to give you guys, give uh, over the next three, three weeks or three more weeks, that is, after this, we want to, these, these pillars are what are going, to, are going to be the pillar in the support of the truth. Are the pillar in the support of the truth. We use scripture then to, to know how to conduct ourselves in the church. So our philosophy of ministry must be based on a careful investigation of both 
the explicit teachings and implicit principles drawn from Scripture. Secondly, second reason we have or want to develop a biblical philosophy of ministry. It's important. Biblical philosophy of ministry. A biblical philosophy of ministry holds us steady. First, it binds us to Scripture. Second, it holds us steady. In life, we, we must know where we're going we, or we'll never get there. In other words, if we have no direction, we'll wander around in circles. It has been said, if you aim at nothing, then you'll hit it every time. We've all witnessed the man who wanders through life with little or no direction. He has great ideas until he gets bored with them, then the direction changes to something different. Most of the time, completely different. Just this week, I was reading a story about an ultra-marathon runner who was running a 125-mile race, and around mile 70, he became delirious and began to run in circles on the trail. Now, if he continued to run in circles on the trail, he would never finish the race. That's obvious. It's obvious. But we, we don't want to, we can't continue to run circles on the trail. The same is true from, for ministry. A church should approach its ministry without definite direction, which has been clearly defined and communicated, will never, ever accomplish its purpose. We will waste time and we'll waste energy and we'll waste valuable resources if we don't have ministry direction. We won't be able to accomplish anything of eternal significance. Therefore, we need a, a biblical philosophy of ministry to keep us on track. Paul reminded the church of Corinth that he runs in such a way as not without aim. Brethren, we must know where we're going so that we can avoid going in the wrong direction, aiming at nothing. And you can be certain that churches who don't share our philosophy of ministry, our passion for ministry that is shaped by, by Scripture, they have a philosophy of ministry which they religiously follow. They realize that without aim, they will not succeed. And they fully realize that if they aim at nothing, they will hit it every time. Beloved, a clearly defined and communicated philosophy of ministry will mobilize, us to, uh, mobilize a greater proportion of our congregation in the same direction. It will narrow, narrow, our, narrow that is, our focus and broaden our impact. And it will, it will encourage a steady and consistent approach to our ministry. Thirdly, third, a biblical philosophy of ministry gives us a standard. Now, we can all struggle with knowing what to do in life. Some of the youth here are struggling to know what college to attend, they, or whether even to attend college, or go to the military, or go to work, maybe in a trade. In life, it's okay for us to struggle to get on the right path. As I look back on life, I see many struggles in my own life of getting on the right path, yet each move was ordained by God who guided me. I'm sure you can see the same things as you look back. And as I look back at the, the, the past two years of, of this body, I see, I see times when we've struggled to get on the right path. We've started this or that Bible study. Uh, we've made this or that decision which never took. And we've changed and we've gone a different direction. Now some of that can be expected as we settle on effective ministries. Even established churches have started ministries or start ministries only to see them wane and go in a different direction. I was caught up in one of those types of changes while I was at seminary. 
I volunteered to help with a ministry called Grace Advance. I was, I was there, and I was gung-ho, and I was ready to go, only to find two weeks later that the pastors who were in charge of Grace Advance were moving on. It happens in ministry. Things change. It happens in life. These changes shouldn't cause us too much struggle. Uh, the Apostle Paul uh, saw many changes in direction. In Acts 16, Luke records this. In Acts 16, 6, it says, Paul's missionary team passed through uh, the, uh, the Figrian and, and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. In verse 7, it says this, 16, 7, After they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not prevent, permit them. In other words, they tried to go a certain direction, but they weren't permitted to do so. Paul and his team ended up in Macedonia, preaching the gospel in Philippi and Thessalonica. Completely different than what they expected, because God guided them there. And so there's, there's times when we're going to change direction. But what we don't want to do, what we don't want to do is continue down a road that's not profitable. There are times when programs which have little or nothing to do with the church's overall purpose consume the church's resources and time. Acts 66, 1-7 is a great example of how ministry, Acts 6, verses 1-7, that is, is a great example of how ministry priorities can get out of line. Some of the widows were being overlooked in the serving of food, and is threatened to take the time and energy the time and energy away from the apostles, but they chose to focus on prayer and the ministry of the word. They made the right decision. They they chose the right priorities. Sometimes churches though don't make good choices, and they get sucked into they get sucked into ministries which may be good. They don't, but they don't fit the philosophy of ministry. As and as. And as as an example, some churches operate Christian schools only to find the school becomes a huge ministry burden which pulls massive resources away from other ministries becoming a major distraction. I've actually seen two, two different churches go through this where they have a, a, a Christian school and under their roof that's creating a major distraction and one of the churches chose to shut the school down. Another one of them chose to continue to go forward with it. And what happened was is that the one who chose to shut it down was able to focus more on ministry and they never missed a beat in ministry. But the other one who chose to go forward with it, who chose to continue the Christian school, had massive resources sucked for them and even, from, even to today are struggling with it. I'm not against Christian schools, by the way. The point is, is we need to be looking at what we should do as a church through the lens of our philosophy of ministry. Let's look at number four. A biblical philosophy of ministry provides us a shield. A biblical philosophy of ministry provides us a shield. According to the Apostle Paul, the elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's Titus 1.9. We can easily fall into doctrinal error, yet we must understand that apostasy occurs not only in orthodoxy or doctrine, but it also can occur in orthopraxy or the practice of our doctrine as well. You see, many churches, many churches have sound doctrinal statements. You read their doctrinal statements. You, you can read hundreds of them. And they're sound. They, they're, they're, they're sound doctrine. But then when you go there, it's completely different. 
because they're not practicing their doctrine. And so it's important that we, that we uh, practice what we preach. In Galatians 2.14, Paul called Peter out for his lack of living out the doctrine that Peter clearly understood. In 2.14 it says, I said to, Paul says, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Clearly then, the, knowing the truth, Knowing the truth must be accompanied by living the truth. And we must understand that we can apostatize then in degrees without noticing we've slipped. A properly, a properly crafted and utilized philosophy of ministry will provide a needed check on the direction of this church. A shallow and flippant understanding of divine purpose of the church will lead to pragmatic, carnal, and even sinful approaches to ministry. The influence of our current culture with all its allurements, the effect of liberal theology and the impact of those people who would desire to live in the flesh will push our church off its charted course unless we are constantly making course corrections. And the only way we can do this is to have a biblical philosophy of ministry. So with this as our backdrop, I hope you're convinced, by the way. I hope you're convinced that we need a biblical philosophy of ministry as a church. With this as our backdrop, let's look at the four pillars which form the foundation of Grace Bible Church's philosophy of ministry. We've already said that Grace Bible Church is committed to these four pillars which form the foundation of, of our philosophy of ministry. First, let's look at the first one. Grace Bible Church Gainesville is committed to the exaltation of God. Now, these pillars should look familiar to you, those of you who have gone through our series on the purpose of the church, because they're based on the purpose of the church we, we have established and what we reviewed last week. It, it's our belief, then, that our ministry should be supported by these four pillars, as I've said. In other words, we desire for each of our ministries to be supported by these principles. As an example, our pulpit ministry, our preaching ministry, should be supported by these principles. So we believe that effective preaching will be God-exalting. Right? If, we, if, we, if our aim is to exalt God, then we believe that our pulpit ministry should be God-exalting. Secondly, we believe it will be an exposition of Scripture. So therefore, we will explain the Scriptures. We will explain the Scriptures. Third, we believe that it will, should equip the saints. It must, that is, equip the saints. And fourth, what we, we believe that it will call, the, the pulpit ministry, the pre preaching ministry, ministry will call the, the lost to repentance. These are, these are aspects of the pulpit ministry that we expect. These are our expectations. And these expectations can be applied to any, any ministry. So, as an example, we're going to have youth ministry this afternoon. Our youth ministry must be God-exalting. We must teach the Scriptures. We must equip the saints. And we must call the, the lost to repentance. Now, for the rest of the day, we're going to study the first of these four pillars. Pil pillars, that is. We'll do so by looking at Isaiah 6. We read it earlier. We're going to draw out some principles here 
from, from this passage. And as, as we do so, what, the four principles that, that we're going to draw out are four results. What we're going to see then, that is, are four results of our commitment to the exaltation of the God of God. So the point, the point we're making is, is that if we exalt God, these will be the results. These will be the results. We will recognize God's holiness and power. We will realize man's rebellion. We will relish God's grace. And we will reveal God's truth. And I just want to remind you, this is all under, this is the result of the exaltation of God. Let me start by saying that we must come to the church, but with the purpose of lifting God up. If we don't, we will come to come think, thinking the church is all about me and serving me. We will believe that this church is only here to minister to my wants and my desires. In other words, if we don't exalt God, then we will take God off His throne and we will give ourselves a seat. Now, to exalt God means to come to grips with His incomprehensiveness and to worship Him for it. Exalting God is the manifestation of a life that humbly pursues the truth of the Word of God. It's a pattern that comes from a life that humbly submits to His Word. Now, I won't believe in the promises of God if I don't have a high view of Him. And as such, if I, if I don't have a high view of God, then I won't believe that He is able to deliver me when I am in a time of trial and testing. In other words, I'll look for other means to make it through the trials. During Isaiah's ministry, the people of Judah have been through a period of prosperity, not, like, not unlike our own time. They have enjoyed this prosperity, but they have forgotten the God who blessed them. They had a low view of God. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to our, to our culture? A, a low view of God and a high view of man? Therefore, they faced a period of judgment, which would lead to their exile from the land of promise. Now this shouldn't come as a huge surprise because Moses had told them that God would bless them for their obedience and He would curse them for their disobedience. Isaiah then was commissioned by God to proclaim Moses' message to the people of the day, ultimately God's message, right? And Isaiah 6 records the, the commission of Isaiah. In his commission, I believe that we'll see the importance of ministry in ministry of having a high view of God and a low view of man. Look at the first result. We will recognize God's holiness and power. Look at the text. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Notice that, that Isaiah says he saw the Lord, Adonai. This is a vision of the Lord that was given to Isaiah. He, Isaiah describes Him sitting on the throne, which, which emphasizes God's dominion or rule. Isaiah emphasizes His rule, His authority, His power. More than that, Isaiah saw him as lofty and exalted. This vision is far above anything that Isaiah had ever seen. It's high above any, anything any man has seen, save for a few. 
John recorded a, a similar scene in Revelation 4. Ezekiel had a similar vision in Ezekiel 1. Daniel saw the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7. These men were given uh, the awesome privilege of seeing God high and lifted up and on His throne. Now just really quickly, the next time Isaiah mentions one high and lifted up, it's to the suffering servants, the Lord Jesus. So I believe that what Isaiah is seeing here is the Lord Jesus sitting on the throne. Look at Isaiah 6.2. The seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We see here the angels continually worshiping the Lord. But I want you to notice the holiness of God. It says that the seraphim used two of his wings to cover his face. You know why he did that? can't look upon God's glory. He did this because he couldn't look upon the holiness of God and survive. We're just flippant about God's holiness. But in reality, this angel was, not, was unable to look at, at him because of his holiness. He, his, even the angels must be protected from God's holiness. In Exodus 34, God gave Moses just a glimpse of his glory. And when he came down from the mountain, his face shone. You remember that? His face shone? Aaron and the people, this is interesting, Aaron and the people were actually afraid of Moses. They were afraid of the reflection of the glory of God. What does that say about the glory of God? What does that say about what Isaiah witnessed here? Beloved, such is the holiness of God. It's an awesome thing. And we must understand that in God's holiness, He's separate from sin. He's separate from us. He is altogether different. He is alien to us. Sinclair Ferguson says this. Sinclair Ferguson says this. God's holiness means that He's separate from sin. But in holiness, but holiness in God also means wholeness. God's holiness is His Godness. It is His being God in all that it means for Him to be God. To meet God in His holiness, therefore, is to be altogether overwhelmed by the discovery that He is God and not man. End quote. Are you overwhelmed by God's holiness? Are we as a church overwhelmed by who He is? By His Godness? Are we overwhelmed by the discovery that He is God and not man? He is not like us? Notice that Isaiah says the whole earth is full of His glory. It's a vision, I believe, of the future when, God's, when God rules the whole earth. You know why I don't think the whole earth is full of His glory today? Because I'm here. And I'm a sinful man. And you're here. And you're sinful. And He can't exist with sin. He's completely separate from it. Look at Isaiah 6.4. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out and while, while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah continues by giving us a glimpse of the power of this awesome scene. 
He says that the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out. Now, I don't know if you've noticed it, but it says the angels were calling out. So the voice of the angels who were worshiping God were shaking the thresholds. What does that say about the God they worship? And beloved, this is the God we serve. He is no different today. He is just as holy and just as powerful. And we join the angels in their exaltation when we recognize God's holiness and power. When we recognize His holiness and power and we exalt in it. Let's look at the second result of our commitment to the exaltation of God. If we are committed to the exaltation of God, we will recognize God's holiness and His power. And secondly, we will realize man's rebellion. We will realize man's rebellion. Look at the text. Isaiah 6.5 And I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here we see Isaiah's reaction to his experience. It's the same type of reaction that the Apostle John had upon, had, had upon seeing the risen Christ as, re, as recorded in Revelation 1. There it says that John saw the risen Christ and you know what he did? He fell as a dead man. He fell as a dead man. Here in this account, Isaiah clearly recognizes the holiness of God and recognizes that he is undone because of his sinfulness. He knows that he's a man of unclean lips and he's among a people with unclean lips. And he recognizes that his lips are indicative of his heart and who he is at the, at the center of his being. And both are unclean. God's holiness then vividly reminds Isaiah of his unworthiness. Beloved, there's nothing like the realization of God's holiness to make us aware of our rebellion. Now, I'm sure that you've experienced being in the presence of someone who walks in righteousness. And when, when you know that you fall well short, I, I'm sure that you, 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 whether it's your parents or, or someone who you look at and you go, that person, he, he, he or she walks in holiness. And I know that I fall well short and I know who I am in, in my heart. There's a sense of undoing, Right? There's a sense of being uncovered. Beloved, this is only a glimpse of what it would be like to be in the presence of true holiness. True holiness. Isaiah reacted accordingly and he said, Woe. Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am a ruined man. Brethren, this is the only appropriate response to a holy God. It's the only appropriately, appropriate response to uh, the holiness of God. And if we truly seek after God and we truly see Him as holy, we will come face to face with our own sinfulness. We will realize man's rebellion. Our own rebellion. And we will, we will join Isaiah in saying and crying, Woe is me. Listen to this quote by R.C. Sproul. 
two things that every human being absolutely must come to understand are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. These topics are difficult for people to face. I'm sure some of you today, I'm going to stop right there and say, some of you today are saying, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. This holiness thing, and, and I, can, I, I kind of get that, but now you're going too far. You're saying, I'm sinful. You're saying, I'm undone before a holy God. But we have to come face to face with that. It's difficult, but we have to come face to face with that. And, and he goes on to say, R.C. Sproul, and they go together. If we understand who God is and catch a glimpse of His majesty, purity, and holiness, then we are instantly aware of the extent of our own corruption. If we, if we are committed to the exaltation of God, beloved, we will realize man's rebellion. Look at the third result of our commitment to the exaltation of God. Third, we will relish God's grace. We'll relish God's grace. It follows, right? Look at Isaiah 6.6. 6. And one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, and which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. We've seen then in the first six verses of this chapter, God has given Isaiah a vision of His majesty, a, a glimpse of His holiness. And this, uh, this vision brings Isaiah to the precipice. He is a broken man. <coughs> at, at this moment, as Isaiah stood there, he realized something of the infinity of God, something of the vastness of God, and he couldn't fully grasp it. Charles Spurgeon says this, As well as might a gnat seek to drink the ocean, as a finite creature to comprehend the eternal God, a God whom we could understand would be no God. If we could grasp Him, He could not be infinite. If we could understand it, He could not be divine. You see, Isaiah realized his own sinfulness before a holy God. And, and he could not have known at that moment that God had prepared him in a way that only God could have done. Only God could have prepared Isaiah for this moment. He was a broken man, but by God's grace, he was about to be a cleansed man. God had specially prepared him. Notice the text. Seraphim took the burning, the burning coal and touched Isaiah's mouth and said, Behold, this has is, this is touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Now, what we have to understand is this probably refers to Isaiah's spiritual cleansing for service to God. But we can't miss God's grace here. Can't miss it. He saves us despite our sinfulness. He uses us for ministry even though we are a sinful people. God's grace is infinite. R.C. Sproul, we, we, we read the first part of this quote earlier, he states this, when we become aware of the extent of our, of our own corruption, we fly to grace. 
we fly to grace because we recognize there is no way that we could ever stand before God apart from grace, end quote. Beloved brethren, every man and every woman who ever lives will stand before God in judgment. And apart from the grace of God, we are eternally damned by the holiness of God. It's a hard truth. Hard truth. But it's glorious at the same time. We are rebellious and we deserve God's wrath, yet we find grace and mercy, which are undeserved when we cry out to Him in repentance like Isaiah. When we say, woe is me, for I am ruined, we find that grace and mercy. Just like Isaiah did. Beloved, we, the more we understand and exalt God's holiness, the more we will relish His grace. Look, we can't be saved until we're lost. If you're you're not lost, then you can't be saved. It's when we come to the realization of who we are before a holy God, when we exalt in God, that we come to realize our own rebellion and our need for His grace. Look at the fourth result of our commitment to the exaltation of God. Again, what we want to remember here is that that as a church, our first pillar is to exalt God. It's the exaltation of God. And here is the result. This is what will happen if we do this. What will happen? Look at the text. Isaiah 6.8. The fourth one is we will reveal God's truth we will reveal God's truth. Look at the text. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, this is Isaiah, Here I am, send me. We see the voice of the Lord asking, Who will go? Who will reveal the truth of God's holiness and power? Who will go to an obstinate people and call them to repentance? We need to remember that it's not as if God needs us. It's not as if God needs someone to go. He can reveal Himself as He chooses, but He has chosen to use men and women to reveal His greatness. C.S. Lewis said this, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the wall of a cell. End quote. We can't. God's glory is going to shine. God will be seen in all His glory. But the glorious thing is is that God uses sinful man to proclaim His name. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need me to sit here and preach the Word of God. He can do just fine without me. But He has chose to use mortal men and women to reveal His truth. And Isaiah, fresh from his vision of the grandeur of God, says, Here I am, send me. Here I am, send me. When we resolve to truly exalt the Lord, we will have an insatiable desire to proclaim Him. I can promise that if we as a church truly resolve to exalt, resolve to exalt the Lord, we will also desire to reveal 
His truth which glorifies Him. When we join Isaiah in seeking to exalt Him, we will recognize His power and holiness, which will bring us to the point of realizing our own rebellion. This will reveal to us our own brokenness. When we see His power and His holiness and His authority, we will realize our own rebellion and and it will reveal to us our own brokenness and lead us to relish His grace. The fact that He saves, that He shows grace and mercy. Because we'll come to know that outside of His plan of redemption and His own Son, the Lord Jesus, who went to the cross and died for our sins, we are completely undone. Outside of His provision for salvation, we are completely undone and can never be reconciled to a holy God. We can never have a relationship with Him because our sin separates us from Him. In our sinfulness, we can never be in the presence of a holy God. We can't. Yet when He saves us by His grace, we can't help but say in our hearts, Send me, O Lord. I want to be a revealer of Your truth. Beloved, may we always evaluate our ministries for whether they're God-exalting. May we always take a high view of God and a low view of man May we always relish the fact that God saves by grace through faith and uses sinful people for His glory to accomplish His will. May this church be used to reveal the truth of the Word of God. May our refrain on this side of heaven always be, send us, send us. Oh Lord, as we have seen here with Isaiah, may we be a people. I want to get more personal and say, may may I be a preacher who exalts your name. But I also want to ask, may we be a church that exalts your name. May no one ever darken the door of this church without hearing of the holiness of God. Without hearing of the man's rebellion. Without realizing your grace without knowing Your provision for sin and Your Son, without hearing that Your Son went to the cross, not for His own sin, because He didn't have any, Lord. He was perfect. Perfect Lamb of God. Sacrificed. Your wrath poured out upon Him. You made Him to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him.
Father, may we proclaim that truth. May we exalt you for that truth. May we reveal that truth, the truth of your gospel, to everyone who will listen, even to an obstinate people. We praise you and thank you this morning. In Christ's name, amen.